Most people don't wake up one day and be like, you know what? I think today I want to shoot up a school. No. These people have either dealt with either bullying or they were abused. It, I mean, it could go down the list. They were dirt poor. And there's just so many different levels. So it's hard to just say, well, you know, they're just, they're a monster. I mean, look at half of the serial killers, okay? They were all either molested, neglected, or abused. Damn near almost all of them. There's just a very few that may not fit that mold. So for the most part, people do not just wake up and decide to do these things. It's a progression. And a lot of times it starts out with fantasies. And once you start having these fantasies, that's when you really, you know, you, you need to go and talk to somebody so you can start to rewire it. But that is something that I've really learned throughout all the research that I've been doing. Tiffany Richards, a survivor and an advocate and the host of the True Crime Connections podcast, a podcast that's about so much more than true crime. I'm Jason Blair, and this is the Silver Linings Handbook podcast. Tiffany Richards was born in southern New Jersey and then moved to Florida in 1990 with her mother. After realizing that she was a product of generational abuse, a form of abuse that crosses generational family lines and occurs when one family member takes the trauma that they've experienced and passes it along to another family member. Tiffany became obsessed with true crime shows decades before she started her podcast and has always had an interest in forensic scientists and had dreamed of being a private investigator. Over the years, Tiffany says, she observed so many cases that it became clear to her that they had a number of things in common. She could relate to them, and they often involved abuse, mental health challenges, domestic violence, toxic relationships, intergenerational trauma, and generational abuse. She's noticed that there were differences in the challenges of people based on heritage, race, sexual orientation, and socioeconomic conditions. Being a survivor herself, Tiffany saw the importance of helping educate people on the risks, the rewards of healing, leaving, letting go, and moving on. The power of taking your own pain and using it to create a safe place for others to heal and learn and finding a path to a healthier way of living. So, Unlike many true crime podcasts, Tiffany's advocacy is from the lens of a survivor breaking the cycle that leads to both violence and other forms of trauma. Tiffany's podcast started as Crime Over Cocktails. It started out as a true crime podcast and became something so much more. It's really about, in my mind, connections and kindness, boundaries and resilience, reclaiming your voice, whether you're a victim or a perpetrator and hearing the voices of so many others who have walked in your shoes and found a better way. In many ways, Tiffany is someone who should be looked at through the lens of an advocate and through her own survival. On her journey, Tiffany talks about how she was a witness to her own transformation 
from what she calls a, quote, deflated soul, to what she believes now is, quote, an awe-inspiring force. Tiffany notes that healing isn't passive and that instead, one has to be intentional to grow. Today, in an episode filled with as many tears as it is laughter, we're going to talk about trauma and stigma, victims and abusers, the danger of flattening people into characters, healing and advocacy, and the value of that learning, that leaving, and that letting go. I just wanted to thank you for coming on the podcast and just mention I have had the pleasure over the last few, I don't know, has it been weeks? It's probably more than weeks of catching a a number of your episodes. And I was just really struck in your episodes by things like your vulnerability, the assortment of topics that you cover. I know your podcast has the name True Crime in it, but I, I, I feel like it's it's you really capture something deeper about life that whether it has to do with crime or it has to do with just any kind of suffering that's um super powerful. And you know, it's really interesting. So the like the emotion I walked away with is I, I walked away from your um, episodes just feeling a little bit safer in the world. And I really enjoyed that. So mm-hmm. I'm thrilled to have you on. And I, um, you know, just wanted to thank you for, for joining. Well, hello, Jason. And thank you so much. That really means a lot to me. You know, you hope sometimes that what you're doing comes across the way that you want it to. <laughs> And you don't always know if it is. <laughs> it's very funny. After every episode, I'm like, I don't know if that really works the way that I want to do. I feel like as as the as the person on our side of the chair, we're often the worst judge of that. Oh my God, we're the worst. Are you kidding me? <laughs> Seriously. But that's kind of why I put true crime connections, because all these things, they really are connected. Like, Mm. it's time that we make that connection between generational trauma, childhood trauma, and crime, and domestic abuse, sexual abuse. There really is a connection there. Mm. It's really interesting, because, you know, one of the things in thinking about all the different things that you mentioned, domestic violence, sexual violence, like the mental health things... These are all the things that do lead to crime that we don't often talk about, right? Like if I were in a true crime discussion forum talking about any case, pick a case right now, we'd be talking about whether the person was a psychopath or not a psychopath or whether they were a narcissist or a narcissist. But we're 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 not really capturing the deeper part, like what leads to it sometimes. Absolutely. And that's where my podcast took a turn because I wasn't always true crime connections. So doing all these stories, I couldn't tell you how many stories started off with, well, they had a really rough childhood or this happened to them when they were young and pretty much look at them now. And it just clicked. It made sense. You can totally see how these people kind of end up where they are. Now, one thing I do want to say though is just because you've had a shitty childhood does not give you the right 
to hurt other people, but it makes sense why you might. Yeah, and I think it probably applies in both directions because I think people don't like to think about, like, we like like our victims, sure, and we like our victims um, to, in our minds, be victimized based on nothing they've done, right? But like we all we all make different choices. And I think both for victims and perpetrators, a lot of these issues around abuse, violence, the cycle of abuse, you know, like I think of some of my friends who've had the toughest times getting out of abusive relationships, you know, sometimes it's because they've been accustomed to it, right? Their life experience has made them accustomed. So I think there's something about the connection both ways. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I am actually a product of generational trauma, and it landed me in two abusive relationships. I kept attracting the same kind of person, not only in relationships, but friends. I had friends that treated me like shit. You know, it's just, it's what you attract because that's pretty much what you know. It's what you're used to, and you don't realize that that's not really love. To you, that's love because that's what happened. There's this um, concept, like in psychology, where they they talk about this notion of um, comfortable pain, right? That there's a certain kind of pain that you can go through that on the outside it looks like brutal. Why wouldn't you run away from that? Why wouldn't you seek to avoid that pain? But because you know it and you know what's going to happen, it's almost in some ways more comfortable than the uncertainty of something that might be better for you, if that makes sense. Makes total sense. Because I mean, when I finally started dating my fiancé now, he was like, I don't know, nice to me. <laughs> he complimented me. Really weird. It made, it made me feel so awkward. I was so... It just, it made me feel weird. And I was like, okay. Because in your mind, you're like, what is going on here? There's this con. Like, there has to be something. Where's the trap door? Right? (laughs) Right. And then you're like, well, what's wrong with you? (laughs) Yeah, man. Like, seriously, have you been living in the same world I've been living in? (laughs) (laughs) And it's sad, though. But that is the way that you are pretty much conditioned. And so it takes use to actually having a nice guy, a nice person there. It it took a while. And I self-sabotage like you would not believe. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, I I absolutely get that same that same sense, like the way that you know, it's it's amazing the way trauma works, right? Like it is it can be healing, it can lead to such growth, and it can lead to some weird, or what seem like weird, but in this bizarre way, logical path. Like I, you know, I've experienced all sorts of trauma and loss. And one of the reactions to it for me has been to run away from intimacy, right? So the more I care about someone and the closer I get to them, the more I want to run away, and then I eventually run away. And I was telling my therapist at one point, I was like, yeah, this just only really happens in dating relationships. And then she started pointing out how it happened in some friendships. 
And then she's like, and by the way, you know, your mom's dying and you're kind of doing it to her too. And that really caught me because I was like, oh man, I am so conditioned to run away from anything that's good because losing something good would hurt so much more than losing, you know, a not so good person, a, you know, mediocre person, then I can kind of walk away and be like, yeah, whatever. But, um, but in doing that, I was robbing myself just sort of like you were in kind of running away and sabotaging your relationship with your fiance. I was rabbit, robbing myself of so much joy, so much joy. And I think like even talking to you about it right now, I think having these conversations is so important to people like you, me, and the people out there, so many people out there. It's just so important to finding a path to heal and believing that you can heal. Oh, for sure. I mean, I honestly think by the age of, I don't know, maybe 18 to 21, Pretty much everybody has been through some shit. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Mm-hmm. Everybody carries some kind of trauma. Everybody does. It might not be a crime, but it could be that, you know, you lost somebody that was super close to you and you just never got over it. It could be, you know, it could be that you grew up in the foster system and you feel like you were abandoned. There's just so many different levels of trauma. And I think it's nice when you can hear other people's stories because it kind of humanizes you in a sense. Like, there's nothing wrong with me. I'm not damaged goods. I'm working through my shit. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think also sometimes, like, when you're going through it, right? Like, going through the ringer with your trauma, um, you feel kind of like um, terminally unique. They, like in business, there's this thing where um, they call it imposter syndrome. So like everybody's sitting around the conference table, we're listening to somebody talk, and I'm convinced I'm the only one around the table who doesn't really know what's going on, but come to find out most of the people around the table have no idea. Um, but I think there's something with trauma where you feel so terminally unique that you are so unbelievably broken and beyond repair like i mean for me like it, since we talked about relationships i've always felt in my life that when it comes to romantic relationships that i'm broken and i think some of it is being sexually molested as a child i think some of it is just like my sexual orientation because i'm demisexual, so it's really hard for me to develop sexual attraction to people. I think some of it is later traumas, but I feel like it has caused me at times, not every time, to pick the wrong people and to to extend that cycle of trauma. You know, the funny part is like the two really good relationships I've 
had in my life since I was a teenager. One was with someone who had known me since we were 14 years old. So there was no bullshitting or running away. So, and then the <laughs> other one was just somebody who had sort of like pushed their way in and saw right through me immediately. But like, if I had a choice, I probably would have not picked either of those paths. <laughs> I mean, I had a choice. Let me, I had agency, but you know what I mean? Like if I could have hidden myself, I would have. Right. I get that. I mean, shit. I wish I didn't date the people I did too. But <laughs> honestly, that's how I think you learn. You learn about yourself. You learn about what you've been through. And what happened to you is 100% why you are that way. Because they took something that didn't belong to them. And, you know, you you hold that. That's interesting. And I'm sorry that like you went through that. It's, um, you know, I was uh, talking to my brother recently. And we we had, I think we'd gone out to dinner and we'd gone to a movie. And he turned to me and he asked me, like, were you sexually abused as a child? And I was like, yes, it's true. And in his mind, he was like, I swear I thought that happened. And I remember that happened. And I was saying to him, right, that it's fundamentally changed us. You know, we're sitting here and we're talking about problems right now in relationships we have with people and not just romantic relationships. And I was like, listen to what we're saying, right? Like everything that we're struggling with, like not everything, but many of those things can be tied back to those moments. And so maybe it's time for us to take some time to heal and learn about those and face. Because for so long in my life, Tiffany, I was afraid to say the phrase I was sexually molested because it felt so emasculating to me. It felt so unbelievably emasculating to me. And then, you know, life battered me around and I realized actually uh, my sexual molestation probably increased my empathy, my caring for people, my desire to help people, my understanding in situations where my friends had been sexually abused, my advocacy for people, that this thing, yes, it does have to do with a lot of the challenges, but God, does it have to do with some of the most beautiful strengths, too. I wish it could have been another way, but yeah. How long did you keep it a secret for? Interestingly, not very long, because, you know, it's timeline as a kid, but... I ended up walking out and I don't know whether. So it, the way it went down essentially is that the person was sexually abusing, uh, molesting me and other kids. And I never said anything about it happening to me, but then I walked in on it happening to another kid. And then I told my parents then. Mm. So it was seeing it happening to someone else that triggered me. Good for you because you know it's wrong. That person knows it's wrong. And I think outside, I knew it too. But Oh, of course you did. You don't want to get the person in trouble. You don't want to, you know what I mean? You don't want to 
upset your parents, all sorts of all sorts of things. But there's just something about it happening to someone else, especially witnessing it. Right. Yep. It's about it's the power of getting your voice back. It's about getting your power back. And that is what is so empowering about all of it, because there's people who have probably had it a hell of a lot worse. And you can't live in that space. You just you can't because it will eat you alive and nothing good will ever come out of it. So you have to face it. You have to realize what you've been through. And then it's almost like you got to rewire your brain. Mm. Do you? Uh, yeah, sure. I forget which book it was that um, uh, Maya Angelou. Oh, oh yes, yes. The cage. We're, we're the line the cage birds sing, and I always think of that. And I know it has lots of different meanings to people depending on what kind of uh, context that is. But in one. Singing is the natural context of birds, right? Even when they're in a cage, even when they're in captivity. And that it's this inherent form of communication. It's this unique voice that we use to interact. And I I don't think it's a coincidence that so many metaphors for things like domestic abuse, sexual molestation, involve like hands over mouths or even missing and murdered Native American women. Pick your topic. That... I think you lose your ability. It's this almost kind of oppression, right? You lose your ability to sing. And I think getting that voice back, I think is super important, but I think it's really hard to do it on our own. So hearing other voices like your voices help people like me build their voices. And I'm sure my voice does the same for other people at times. How did you get on your journey? Well, funny enough, um, when I first started out, the podcast was actually Crime Over Cocktails. And I started it with a friend. It was her idea. I never would have done this in my freaking life. <laughs> Put myself <laughs> in front of the whole wide world. <laughs> well, by episode four, who would have known we weren't rich? I mean, who knew? Really? You hadn't become yeah. millionaires by then? Okay. We did not. Somehow we missed that boat. <laughs> mm. Well, she quit. Okay. And yeah. So she did all the back end. And so. So that's like the editing, the. Oh, yeah. Social all media, that. the. Okay. I had no idea. I was the one who found the stories, wrote them, you know, did all that stuff. I came up with the logo, the name, you know, I was the creative side. She was the technical side. Hmm. So she just expected that I was going to quit with her. Mm. And I said, there ain't no way in hell. I've already done this. I ripped that bandaid off. I'm not <laughs> quitting. <laughs> right. I had to take a break so I could figure out how to do this stuff. Uh, a lot of nights I cried, screamed. <laughs> <laughs> this is not as easy as it sounds, folks. <laughs> so it was a learning curve. And I once I figured it out, I kept going. And like most women, we all love crime shows. I do not know why. Um, I think I, I realized, though, why 
I kind of got hooked without even knowing how or why. I started seeing myself in some of these stories. Mm, and like the hearing more, about hearing about yes. the characters and being like, wait a second, I remember that. Yeah. Yeah. Like being like, wow, I went through something like that. Oh, that's not normal. It was like an aha moment. Light bulb went on and it was like, yo, sister, something's wrong. <laughs> you know? And the more I did all this research, I realized that, you know, these connections, they are what builds us. Like even pedophiles, the thing is, a lot of them were abused themselves, you know, not to give them an out by any means, but that's what they know. And so if they don't know that that is not okay because they were told it was fine and they were shushed it's really hard for them to be able to turn that off. And so diving deeper into this is when I completely rechanged everything I was doing because I started to realize my own story. I had buried it. I didn't want to acknowledge it. I never mm. even heard of generational abuse. I'd never heard of a narcissist. Financial abuse? Didn't know it was a thing. I've experienced all of this and it was just so eye-opening how did you come to the revelation was it after you started the 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 first run of the podcast or was it like something that came over time like well, yeah, I, I just think a lot of people don't even know some of those concepts exist like intergenerational trauma is not something we talk about and certainly even more so, we don't talk about generational abuse. We don't, you know what I mean? Like, um, right. Yeah. Honestly, one of the times that it really hit me hard is so, for the most part, I try not to say which parent it was, but you know what? It's just, it's time to rip that band aid off, too. It was my mom. Mm. And one day we were talking. And she just broke down crying and she was telling me something that my grandmother did to her. And, you know, she was like, it was brutal, Tiffany. It was brutal. And all of a sudden, my eyes could not hold water to save my life. Um, bawling. Mm. And I said, Mom, you did that to me. And she was like, what? I didn't do that. Yeah, you did. And I go like... So I used to fold towels wrong. <laughs> Something as simple as folding towels. So in my house, if, there's no right way to fold towels. <laughs> okay. <laughs> You're welcome. You're welcome here. <laughs> well, if she didn't like the way I folded them, she would throw them up in the air. She would whip them. She would yell. Like, what's wrong with you? Da, da, da. Wow. And like to this day, if I have to fold a fitted sheet, I get anxiety because I never did it right. Never did it right. And these are the things that stuck with me. And, you know, in seventh grade, you know, she was a single mom. She tried really hard. And I had finally, I was sleeping on an air mattress for a while. And I finally got a real bed. So, you know, you got to clink the little metal pieces together to make the mattress stay. And I was having a hard time. 
Yeah, like for some Most reason kids I wasn't put together their own beds, but okay. <laughs> right. So I had a hard time with it. And she came in and she told me I was more trouble than I was worth. Whoa. That never left me. Never left me. And she, of course, doesn't remember it, but what do you what do you think it was about it? I don't know. Uh, my grandmother was pretty brutal. So <laughs> she is a piece of work, man. She's the only woman I know that when she passed, she left an IOU in her will. <laughs> an IOU? Yes. I swear to God. <laughs> she told my uncle that he owed her money. <laughs> <laughs> Shit, you not. <laughs> oh, my, my. Grandma, yeah, grandma. like, I, I'm saying. You got a bigger problem. You're dead. <laughs> <laughs> I was just like, who does that? <laughs> Go focus on the pearly gates or whatever you do. <laughs> right? But, like, my mom always told me the story when she went to get a cookie. And she wasn't supposed to get the cookie, but she went for it anyway. She was a kid. My grandmother stabbed her in the hand with a fork. Whoa. Yeah, like she was a lovely lady, you know, in her own sense, but she was brutal. It's <laughs> and, it's interesting you say that about her being a lovely lady. I think that's one of the deceptive things about abuse. I mean, we sometimes talk about this with men and women, but we don't talk about it inside families. Like I think of um people I know, friends who have some of the uh, most abusive parents, emotionally abusive parents or otherwise abusive parents have, they're perfectly lovely people. Like if you're not their kids or somebody close to them, they are unbelievably lovely. Like they will take their shirt off their back to come help you. They're so polite. They're proper. They're fill in the blank. And I think sometimes we like make the mistake of thinking those are signs that someone's not abusive, like, but they're not. Right. I mean, it was kind of clear. Um, the priest at my grandmother's funeral uh, gave a very interesting eulogy. <laughs> a, a mixed one? He knew, the, he knew the audience? Well, he said, I knew if I got something wrong in the Bible, here comes Syl coming down the aisle, shaking her hand. And, you know, she would set him straight. She mm. did not hold back ever. She was, she was her own breed, man. <laughs> do you think but she I, was a product herself of abuse? I do. Because I asked my mother that. And that's another kind of like a hob moment. Especially when I saw my mother break down crying when she realized that she had done that to me. She was sobbing uncontrollably. And she was like, I am so sorry. I'm so sorry. I never wanted to do that to you. You know, my mother did that to me. And I always said I wouldn't do it. So without her even realizing what she was doing, she was doing it. And so as time went on, I asked her, you know, it was like, great grandma like was she like that and she's like oh yeah very stern very to the point and so that's the day i forgave my mother for my whole 
freaking life. I did not really like her for a very long time. And um, it was kind of a relief to me to see her Um, break down like that. Because I always thought in a way she hated me deep down. And would you have cared that much that you were hurt? Yes. And it kind of was like, wow, she didn't do these things intentionally. You know, I just thought. Yeah. Right. She did the best she could with the tools that she had. And those were the tools she had. Yep. That must have been a momentous moment for you. How long ago was that? Ah, <laughs> uh, you ready for this? About maybe two years ago. Oh, so it's not not too not too too long. It must it must have been awesome for you though to recognize that. Like, did you when you were younger? Did you did you internalize this? Like, make this a matter of your self worth? Of course. I she told me I was pretty much worthless and I believe that and then I dated men who told me I was worthless. I had a best friend who told me I was worthless. So the pattern was always there. So of mm. course, you're going to start to believe it. You you said the thing before about how you felt that some of it was that you attracted people who were like that and who were abusive. Tell me about that. Like what? Without even realizing it, it's just people who would put you down constantly. You know, uh, one ex used to tell me I was ugly, fat, and gross. I used to have another one that told me I was stupid and, you know, just be a complete freaking jerk. I had friends that would tell me that, you know, you're a horrible mom, you're ugly, you shouldn't do this, you shouldn't do that. I actually, so one girl, she actually, I wanted to go into radio. (laughs) And she told me, right, that um, you don't have the personality for radio. Look at me now, bitch. (laughs) (laughs) What in the well, world do you mean? Right? Do you think it was just to beat you down? Or do you think like you were just attracting people who needed to pummel people? Yeah. I mean, I think obviously these people have their own demons because you don't put people down unless you feel a type of way about yourself. Like all these online trolls and all these haters out there. You know why you're a hater? Because you hate yourself. It's not me mm. that you hate. You hate yourself. You hate something about your own life. So putting me down makes you feel better. And that's just a coward. Yeah. Like, you know, one of the interesting things for me, like in just working with clients, working with my friends, like some of the people who get beat up the most are like also some of the nicest people. Like, I mean, they're like loving, they're caring, they're supportive. And it's always kind of like baffled me by how how loving, caring, supportive people attract people who punch them in the face. Do you know what I mean? Like metaphorically or literally. And it just feels like it's so unfair. It is. There are people who are just like them. 
like loving, caring, supportive. Like it's just so unfair. I feel like these people can smell your aura a mile away. Oh, absolutely. You, yeah, like you can be in a bar, right? We're going to say there's a hundred people in this bar. You are the one, the only one in the whole bar who's really been through some serious shit. Somehow they can smell you. Mm-hmm. And now you are their next target. I, I don't know how they do it. I really don't. It's amazing. <laughs> like they're no, I, I I honestly think that there's some real like there's some real data behind what you're talking about. Like I used to call it the girl who uh hands you the napkin when you spill your drink. And it's that like they're picking up on people's anxiety, that they're loyal, that they're supportive, that they're maybe a, a little afraid, right? And may need to be protected. And they're honing in on that. Like laser because it's viewed as something I can control. I and I think that there's like research around this actually that uh that certain people have a radar for those kinds of uh weaknesses or challenges. For sure. They can sense it. I don't know if it's because you keep your head down low. Maybe you fidget. Maybe I don't know what it is, but they can pick up on it. And then before you know it, you're dating this person and you're in for one hell of a ride. When did you realize about your dating relationships that they were like mirroring some of the abuse in other parts of your life? It's been a few years now. Um, I didn't realize the generational part for, like I said, till just a couple years ago when I actually saw the reaction from my mom. But with dating, I realized I kept finding the same kind of people and I I couldn't understand it. Like their abuse was different. One Mm -hmm. was physical and sexual and, you know, mental. And the other one was just all psychological and, you Mm -hmm. know, cheated constantly, lied constantly and was up my ass like I was doing something wrong. So... You know, that's when I was like, what is going on? Like, what am I doing wrong here? And it all just started coming together. Just, I mean, I'd say within the last five years, I have grown so much. I would think to some people, I might even be like almost unrecognizable inside. Mm. What led you to decide to tell? your story like what well how do you because it's one thing to like come up with revelations about yourself right like you know i think of my trauma as like there's some socially acceptable traumas i was a reporter i saw lots of dead bodies it really impacted me that's socially acceptable to talk about um i was sexually abused less socially acceptable to talk about domestic violence totally not socially acceptable to talk about um by comparison i mean or it's not polite dinner conversation. Um, but I think there's a connection, right, between the more socially acceptable and the least. I actually think the things that are less socially acceptable to talk about are the ones that require less vulnerability in a society that discourages vulnerability because the people who are discouraging it are so afraid of being vulnerable themselves. And so I guess this is a long way of sort of saying that, like, 
I think it takes a lot of courage to be vulnerable. So what led you to decide to tell your story? Because I want other people to realize that you're not alone. There wasn't anything wrong with you. What these people were saying about you is not true. What they tried to hold you back, do not let them. You know, both of them were financially abusive to me. I wasn't even allowed to work. And so they want to keep you in this bubble and you cannot allow that. You have to spread your wings. And I got tired of living in that space and I got tired of always thinking they were right because they weren't. They were far from it. And the more that I saw all these shows and everything, I was like, you know what? It was also time for me to face it. Because like I said, I didn't put a name to all this stuff for a very long time. The more things are coming out, gaslighting, like that was not a thing, <laughs> you know? <laughs> like these Terms that we have now did not exist when this happened to me. I was in my 20s and 30s. They did not exist. So the fact that we are now having these conversations are so important. And you have to. You have to be honest with yourself if you want to grow. And I'm going to let you know one thing, Jason, is some of the, sh the stuff that I'm actually sharing tonight is the first time that I'm sharing it. I have shared some of it, um, but not as much detail. So actually, I it's, appreciate it. Yeah, it kind of makes me feel good. Because <laughs> that's the way it should be. I am, um, you know, I have this. Uh, so my mom died in um, October of last year, and she's amazing. I would talk for hours about her. I was so fucking lucky. I was so unbelievably lucky to have a mom. And um, my ex-partner, and we're best friends, uh, we split it. Five of us did the eulogy. Me, my brother, one of my mom's closest friends, a cousin that was like a daughter to my mom, and my former partner. And she was bawling, my former partner was, afterwards. And she came up to me and she said that uh, it's something I never heard her say. And like I said, we've known each other since we were 14. She said, your mom taught me how to be a mom. Mm. And she is so good to her boys. She's such an amazing mom. And I'm just thinking about what you're saying, right? Like maybe she didn't have the model for a mom. But some woman like my mom came into her life and gave her another way, not just unintentionally, just by being herself. And, you know, it's funny because I had always thought during our relationship, like one of the things that I gave her was love that she didn't get or grow up with or wasn't surrounded by. And, and so long way of saying, my mom dies. I have this friend, this relatively new friend, and she noticed I had disappeared, right? Like, and she reached out and, 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 and one of the things, because I'm like a firm believer in like, don't do anything crazy in the first year after your mom dies. Um, but one of the things that's really, so, so like no dating, no anything like that, but it opened up this great window because I am for someone like my partner, my ex partner who, who got that good thing for my mom, I can carry that on 
with my mom, with my new friend who's gone through lots of difficult things, I can share the love that she didn't get from other people with the kids who are in my life, like my nieces and nephews. I can bring some of that love that she had. And one of the things I am reminded by over and over again, how many of my mom's former students whose lives were changed by her, and by just being there, you were another model other than the people that that person had in their life. So like when I hear your voice and I hear you talking about like race or LGBTQ issues or domestic violence or be vulnerable like you are now, like to someone somewhere out there, like they could be across the ocean, they could be here, you're that voice that's giving them something that they didn't have. And I think that's there's what I love awesome. about this. Yes. Yeah. Well, I hope you know, Jason, your mother is so proud of you. It's very funny. A month before she died, she was in the hospital and she had gotten out in between. And we were having this conversation about like, um, uh, do we do extraordinary care? And she pulled us all around the bed and forced us to answer, even if we didn't want to. And then when we were done talking, she says, hey, since we all agree, there'll be no extraordinary care, right? And then out of nowhere, so the scene is my sister-in-law, my brother, my dad, and I, she grabs my hand and she says, Jason, I love you and I'm proud of you. And you've done really, really well. And it was apropos of nothing. I didn't ask a question. She wasn't just spreading it around the room, but she like knew that even though my mom did nothing in her life that ever made me think she wasn't proud of me, that she knew I needed to hear that. So I I appreciate that. But I I think I want to carry that legacy on by being able to be that going back to our cage bird singing to be that voice like your voice like her voice the more everybody can speak up own your truth you can move past your past it's possible to have a fantastic life even if you've been through some horrible things that does not define you you are not your trauma. You didn't ask to be abused. It happened. You learn from it. You grow. Every day you grow. Like, this is not a one-stop shop. Like, this is a forever journey. You're going to have bad days. That's okay. Right. It's called life. I and I think as you embrace it, right? Like, what I've learned is that my trauma is the best of me. It made everything I love about me right now. <sighs> yeah. Like, I, I think without my trauma, I probably would have been, like, pretty arrogant, narcissistic. Like, I, I am full of myself. I do think I'm really smart and funny and all that stuff. I think I would have been a horrible human being. I no, really do. Uh, no. Yeah, no, no, no. <laughs> you, should, you should ask that. <laughs> no, I, and, and I definitely don't wish trauma on... Uh, anyone, but I will say, how about this? The growth that came from it has, made, has been probably a gift to at least 
my small section of the world. <laughs> well, I am honored that I am part of your circle. Yeah. And I think that you are freaking amazing. So, <laughs> well, welcome. Here's a ticket. I was going to ask you just w- one thing about podcasting. I was having this uh, cool conversation. I was being interviewed earlier today on a new sort of YouTube channel by a guy I really like named Mike Early, and it's just legal history um, podcast. And one of the questions that he asked me was, you know, are podcasters in the true crime space, like, are they journalists or are they whatever? And I was like, well, I think they're like four big buckets you can put them in with a little bit of crossover between the buckets. You have people who are doing it for entertainment. You have people who are journalists, right? They're investigating something or they're reporting the news. You have analytical podcasts, like people who are analyzing. They're not necessarily doing their own reporting, but they're analyzing things and providing commentary. And then you have advocacy, right? And like all of those can be educational. So I'll say each of those can, like even the entertainment ones can be educational. But one of the things I've noticed is there is a small but new crop of podcasts in my mind that are in this true crime space. And they are, you know, they're advocating for a better way of living, but there's something like slightly different in the sense that they're not like the end goal. And I feel this way about your podcast is that the end goal is that people will walk away with a little bit more safety, a little bit more health, a little bit more love. And I'm just wondering whether you think this is, I feel like it's unique in the space. And do you feel like this is something that we should, or we are going to see more of? Absolutely. I've already seen, you know, ever since I have started my journey, I've already seen like more of this starting to pop up because these are stories that do, they, they make people uncomfortable, but they're stories that need and deserve to be told because it, this is real life. This, this happens. It happens in every country, to every color, to every gender. To, it does not matter. Abuse does not discriminate. And it's just so important that we realize it and we start the process. You can't stay stagnant. It's all about your why, you know? And there's, there's a cost, right? Like, yes, very much about the why. There's a cost to not doing it. And so, like, I, I just think about, like, the example that you gave of those relationships or me in my pulling away. Like, I'll give you a real-world one for me, too, on top of that is, like, because I was abused, I think that there was a real risk of me becoming an abuser if I didn't um, deal with my trauma. Because I think, like... Yes, to some extent, it's what you know, right? And I have to give it to my parents. They handled it deftly. Like, they, their response was magical in my mind. They, they believe that their response was not adequate, but they are absolutely wrong, at least in this little child's eyes. But the, um, I think, you know, like, I, I got on that victim, rescuer, perpetrator triangle, right? Like, I could have been a rescuer and, like, given my whole like life to other people and not taking care of myself, I could have become a permanent victim, right? Like constantly getting into victim situations. 
And I could have become a perpetrator because I think the thing about being a perpetrator, a lot of the people that I've worked with, when I think of pedophilia or other things, or I guess sexual abuse, not so much pedophilia, but sexual abuse, a a lot of them are actually self-justifying what happened to them. Like, if I can really fall in love with this person and do this thing, then what happened to me isn't as bad because it's different and it's real. And I'm like, if I hadn't dealt with it, if I hadn't had parents I could talk openly about it with, if I hadn't like met the girls that I met in high school who were my friends who had also gone through abuse and opened up to me about their abuse, I don't know where on that triangle I would have landed. And instead, I found a way in the middle. So, you know, like I look at those people who are constant victims or who are just rescuing everyone and not taking care of themselves and those perpetrators. And I see me because I could have been any of them. Yeah, but you chose the better good. And I was lucky. You know, I had people, I had voices. Going back to our point about voices. I had voices that showed me another way, like, and that's just pure gift, like luck. There's nothing about me that deserves it more than, you know, someone else. Yeah, but you learned how to work through it, and you knew what you didn't want to be. That is so important in itself. You have to realize where you could have gone, but you didn't. And to that, that's to your point about the why, like, right, understanding. Talk to me more about that, the understanding of your why. You have to know your why. Because even earlier, like I said, podcasting is not as easy as everyone thinks it is. You know, they're like, oh, you know, it takes 40 minutes and it's this, 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 and this. No, 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 no. (laughs) We have to pay, right? We have to pay to do this in some sense, some way or form. Uh, Mentally, emotionally, and also uh, financially, literally cash. Absolutely. And it's not an easy thing to do. And so if you do not really have a why, you're never going to make it because it's not, it's not easy. Going to Apple and click and play, that's easy. But to actually do this, it takes a lot. It really does. And something has to keep you going. There's a reason why you put up with the craziness. Because you know you're making a difference. You know that you're also healing in this sense. Like almost every guest that I have on my show... I learn something more about myself. Mm, and couldn't agree it's more. empowering. Yes. Like you're I'm growing with my audience. And that is so powerful. And I wouldn't want it any other way. I wouldn't give up these conversations for anything in the world. Cause like even, you know, you were saying earlier that there are things that you shared you've never shared. Like there are definitely things in this conversation I don't think I've shared with people. I, and it's this opportunity for like growth. And, you know, we talk about the idea of therapy that you're behind, you know, like with the therapist, you're having therapy, but I think there are ways to find therapy in your life just through conversations. 
just through interactions, through learning and growing with people, whether you're the podcaster or the listener or the person who's hanging out with their friend. Or I was going to just, do you find it difficult or hard to be public and vulnerable about these topics? And also, emotionally, like, what does it feel like to go into these deep places with your guests? There are definitely some guests that affected me differently, just hearing what they had been through. And because myself, my personality, like I cry at commercials, okay? (laughs) Because I put myself in that commercial and it's like, I'm that person. So when I have somebody telling me some of this horrendous stuff, I can't not get touched by it, you know, and to think of where they are now. Wow. That's, that's where you grew from. It's huge. And I just think we all really have to be strong. And again, these are conversations that we have to have because somebody else is going through the same thing. You can't be afraid to tell these things. Now, being on video <laughs> is one thing I've struggled with this whole time on podcasting. <laughs> and oh my gosh. <laughs> I hate I it. always joke I always joke to people that like when I'm on video, it's like a different thing. <clears throat> and they're like, How how are how are your episodes different? I'm like, well, cause During the middle of my normal episodes, I will lay my head on the desk and sometimes cry. I will lean into the back of my chair so far. I'm like, it's just not video appropriate. (laughs) Right. I'm always worried about my face. I'm very animated. (laughs) And so I don't want to take away from my guests. You know, like when I talk with my guests, we are for the most part face to face in that sense. But I don't really publish it that way, except for, I mean, now I'm um, shout out to Casey if he listens to this. He's been helping me with that. Oh my God. I think I, um, he is, uh, actually, he's part of our network now, but um, he has the Deluxe Edition Network. And so he's really good at making shorts and everything. And so he's handling that for me. But can I tell you the amount of anxiety that went through me (laughs) knowing that he did this? But at the same time, I mean, the results are already showing. People want to see the vulnerability. Hmm. They want to know that you're not, you know, blowing smoke up their butt. You know, like people really want that connection and that's what we're all here for. So I don't think I can ever put a full episode like on video out just because some of the topics are, some of them are very hard, Um, Hmm. very hard. Some of them stay with me. There's, there's a few that have stayed with me, but kudos for them for sharing it and it's the only way that we're all going to grow. So, what have some of the most impactful ones been for you? Oh, I mean, I've I've had a, a few make me cry. Um, one, I tried to hide it as much as I could, um, but she was 
nine years old and she woke up to three men and they um, ended up taking turns with her. And in the middle of it, she looked over and watched her mother and her mother's best friend were in the corner watching. They were getting free drugs. That really just struck me, you know, like just to think that her mother could do that. Like that, that still right now, it just, it gives me goosebumps in a sense because my heart goes out to her so much, but you should see what she's done with her life. She's amazing and she's overcome it. And that's just the beauty of so many of these. You know, I had another girl on my show who lost her baby because of the boyfriend. He made her lose it. And, you know, she literally sat and cried on my podcast. And it just, it breaks your heart to know that somebody went through that. And then just to even make it even worse, he ended up naming his first child the name that they were going to name that child with another woman. Yeah, it's just, it's difficult conversations, but they're conversations that need to be talked about. Have you? Do you have any thoughts or have you noticed any trends between or related to the people who are able to heal and those who struggle? Yeah, uh, a lot of them have definitely started their own healing journey. Most of them now either they do holistic for the most part, but it's um, hypnotherapy, Reiki, um eft rtt oh yeah all of it they were able to find something that they loved and identified with and now they use that passion to help other people and i think that's the most beautiful thing about all of this because yeah these come from very hard dark times Hmm. but the the thing is, we will not allow ourselves to live there. We have forced ourselves into the light. And you can never go back to the darkness. You have to keep pushing forward. You have to. You, know, you got me thinking about something that I haven't thought about in a long time. Because, you know, I was a little kid and my mother is only is the only mother you know, I've I've known her as her happy, wonderful, loving person self. And my dad, he's such a good guy too. But I think about both of them. And my father, when he was in college, he was home from college, their house got on fire and his nieces were in the bedroom that he was supposed to sleep in. And mm. everyone else got out of the house except for them. My uncle nearly burnt himself to death trying to um, break back into the house and save them. And that family has been through so many tragedies. Like my uncle lost his only child in a car accident. Like you can pick. There's been so much trauma in that family. And it also shaped 
who my dad is, the good person he is today. And then my mom, who people rarely know this about it, but she experienced sexual abuse and mental health crises and all these things I never saw that I only found out about because she shared after I shared with her and that it was relatable. And, you know, as you're talking about these people where so much good and growth has come out of it, I'm like, I'm missing the fact that the two most important people in my life who helped shape me, you know, went through things like that. And it's almost like the reverse of generational abuse, right? They've like taken it and they've turned it around into something good that they passed on to their children. Hopefully we will pass on to our children, like the reverse of it. If that makes sense, is that something I am? For? Oh, yeah. I am the one who broke the cycle. Yeah, I, I have my son is eighteen years old, and there were times where I could see I was about to either say something that, you know, words hurt, and I get it; they're only words. You know, my mother she never laid a hand on me. But it was the emotional scars. So whoever came I, up with that line, sticks and stones may hurt your bones, but words will never uh hurt you is hurt dead, me. Wrong. dead wrong. Dead wrong. Right? <laughs> right. <laughs> Liar. <laughs> or or just a really big optimist. Right. Well, I saw myself going in that direction. And I said, absolutely not. It stops here. It stops now. And I do everything in my power to make sure that I do not do that to him. I tell him I love him every day. And he's always like, yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I don't care. You're going to know. I love you. You were wanted. You know, like you are worth it to me just because we can't keep the cycle going. I mean, you and why half of my family to right. tell somebody you love that you love them. Yeah, life's short. Your family. Uh, well, yeah. I mean, my grandmother had four kids, and so they're all fucked up. <laughs> you know, like so in their own ways. So you have to be the one to stand up notice it, see it, and change it. Be the change. You know, one of the things, like as somebody who does interviews, you know, like I think of myself as just like a vessel, right, for other people's stories, a facilitator, right, other than other stories. But, um, you know, the more people make comments, I realize I, I play an active role in it. One of the things I've been thinking about is like, what is – I'm going to throw this one to you. But like, what do you think your responsibility is when it comes to helping people tell their stories? To not judge, to listen. You cannot judge somebody that you did not walk in their shoes. So nowadays, like if I hear a story about somebody who did something horrible, instead of being like, wow, they're a monster, da 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 da, I think. I wonder what happened to them. How did they get there? Yeah, and I think the same thing even happens to victims. I had a friend I was talking to 
recently who's been in like um you know domestic violence and relationships and she was talking about it and she was telling each of the stories and at the end of it she would say a comment and they don't like maybe half jokingly about how dumb she was that she didn't learn the lesson each time and i thought to myself like man you are judging yourself a little bit too much like you were just a human like you were just a kid you were just like and i feel i guess the point i feel like we're really quick to judge both perpetrators and victims without first asking that question that you're getting at is like how did you get here like what was your path what was your journey because i think like there's this long fellow quote and i'm going to butcher it but it goes something like um if you could see within the secret histories of every man's heart you'd see such sadness and sorrow to disarm all hostility. And I think when I really get to know people, there's a little bit of truth to that. It's a lot of truth to that. Most people don't wake up one day and be like, you know what? I think today I want to shoot up a school. No, these people have either dealt with either bullying or they were abused it, I mean, it could go down the list. They were dirt poor, and there's just so many different levels. So it's hard to just say, well, you know, they're just, they're a monster. I mean, look at half of the serial killers, okay? They were all either molested, neglected, or abused. Damn near almost all of them. There's just a very few that may not fit that mold. So for the most part, people do not just wake up and decide to do these things. It's a progression. And a lot of times it starts out with fantasies. And once you start having these fantasies, that's when you really, you know, you, you need to go and talk to somebody so you can start to rewire it. But that is something that I've really learned throughout all the research that I've been doing. Hmm. Yeah, people, yeah, people people think that like people like serial killers can't change or fantasies. And I'm like, you underestimate the power of neuroplasticity. You can rewire your brain in ways you can't imagine. Right. I mean, Kemper, he tried to get help numerous times. They turned him away. That's like Kemper. Was he the he was the, the cop? Well, he was the guy who's too too tall to be a oh, police officer. It, Yes, in the he's the one that's in the um, TV show Mindhunter, the one that John Douglas's character and his partner are interviewing all the time. Yeah, Kemper. Yeah, yeah I mean, there's a few of them that have. I didn't know he tried to get help. Yes, he even he fantasized he about like, like is he the one who, like, cut his mom's head off and then. Something or other with it. I forget what uh, he did had with sex with it. Yeah, yeah, he had sex with her head. The um, but he was having fantasies about that before. But I, I didn't realize he had tried to get help. Yep, he went and asked for help, and they pretty much said, "You're fine. Just you know, don't do it." 
And I can't think, I want to say there was even another one that said, listen, they were already in jail and said, listen, if you let me out, I'm going to do it again. They wanted to stay in prison. And they were like, nope, you're good. You're, you're good to go. And then they get out and they reoffend. It's a sickness. They need the help. You know, his mother, well, Kemper, is super abusive to him. Right. Yes. Yes. And, Even I, a, and, I, and I think the abuse, actually, to your point about general trauma, as I recall, the abuse is what actually set the fantasies in motion. Like, stop yes. the abuse. Yeah. He hated his mother because of what she did. And then a lot of them internalize it, and then they hate all women. And that's how that begins. Like, what was it? Jerry Bedros? Barros? One of those. He, he was the shoe guy. He loved him some shoes. He would tackle women and steal their shoes. <laughs> really? Yes. But then the mother caught him one day in shoes, like high heels that he had um... stolen. And she literally, like, just put him down a hundred ways. And after that, he started killing people. It's just, these are cries for help. And people need to listen, especially if somebody tells you, I need help. You have to listen. Why do you think, like, we choose to ignore those parts of perpetrator stories? Back then, people didn't talk about this stuff. You know, I mean, we're talking back in the 60s, 70s, 80s. I would say like the whole mental health, the Me Too, all of this stuff within the last 10 to 15 years has taken a huge turn. I mean, back in the day, we used to call them shrinks. And you're going to go to a shrink and you're going to mm -hmm. lay on a couch and you're going to tell them about your life. You know, so nobody wanted to do it because... Sounds frightening. Right. You know, now you're labeled as a crazy person. And that's not, that's not the truth at all. It just means that you want to get better. You want to work on what you know is not working. Mm. What do you see as sort of like maybe a path to a better world with like less abuse and violence, less cycles of abuse and like you know what what self-reflection yeah you need to understand where you came from what you're capable of and realize that it is fixable you know like i actually started a nonprofit called the crime connection and i hope i want to start talking with new mothers pregnant mothers or parents, really. I mean, it goes both ways. But if you were a product of abuse, so you do not repeat it. I think if children are grown up in a more loving atmosphere, we will have less destruction. Because almost every person, all the people who shoot up the schools, the serial killers, the abusers, that is something that they have carried with them their whole lives. And eventually they just, they lash out. So if we can cut that down, I understand like nobody's ever going to be perfect. If you make $8 an hour, you know, you're probably going through some shit if you have like six kids. 
So times are tough, but you have to realize what you say can last a lifetime. What you do can last a lifetime. And the next thing you know, your kids go into prison because they just shot up a mall or something. Mm. It can be preventable, at least to a point. Now, there are just evil people out there. But for the most part, these all stem from somewhere. Mm. Mm. I always wonder about evil, whether it's just that we haven't figured out what the thing was. You know, I think it goes I, both ways. Yeah. I am. Um, so Toni Morrison wrote this uh, novel, The Bluest Eye. Um, and, you know, the phrase, The Bluest Eye, in the in novel, it actually has to do with like, uh, you know, it's a symbol for whiteness in it and the ultimate desire of the central character, you know, due to her having to having she's black and she's grown up in a society that values whiteness, right? As the supreme positive characteristic, it's the blue side. And I always think of that sometimes, like when I'm thinking about victims, like we all have our like little bluest eye, right? Like we look at what's happened to us. We look at our imperfections and we wish we were that other person. And what I found over time is I've looked at the bluest eye, the bluest eyes in my life is, oh no, no, they're just like me. And they're just like me. And I think one of the things for me is like breaking down this myth that suffering isn't universal that we all suffer. Like that is not just a part of life. It is a instrumental part of life and growth. And I, I just wonder that if we could look at everyone and say, everyone suffers, that a lot of those fights, those battles, that judgmentalness that you're talking about, if we could accept that we, we, we all have that bluest eye or don't, that there'd be so many more bridges between us on the way to that, that path. But let me give you a chance to share like any closing thoughts you want to, or any message you want to give. People. I would like to say that hurt people hurt people. So it's time that we start to heal the hurt. And it's time that we come up with different coping mechanisms from when we're mad, we're angry, we're frustrated, you know, we're sad, that we're not taking it out on people that don't deserve it. A child who is six years old cannot help you because you cannot pay the light bill. So... Do not take it out on a child. I know that is so much easier said than done because we're humans. Our emotions sometimes fly off. But it's just to sit and reflect. Sit with your thoughts before reacting. I've learned to put myself in timeout. <laughs> Grown ass timeout. Back when you could take, uh, yeah, back when you could take um, batteries out of cell phones, I would just rip the battery out of the back of my phone and be like, "I'm in timeout." Yeah, I mean, anytime I felt like I was going to be that person to my child, I shut myself in my room 
And I was not allowed out until I was a better person <laughs> because that's, it's just not fair. And this stuff carries a lifetime. So anyone who's listening and you're like, oh crap, I do these things. Please just remember that, yes, our anger, our frustration, it gets the best of us sometimes, but you have to realize the impact that it has on other people's lives. And hurt yeah. people definitely hurt people. And you believe, like, in that idea that people can re rewire? Because, you know, one of the things that, like, I say to myself, because, well, needless to say, my relationship with emotions is very complicated. Sometimes I have them. Sometimes they're out of control. Sometimes they're whatever. But, um, but one of the things that I like, there's this concept called opposite action, and I will tell myself, like, okay, you're angry, so instead of lashing out, like, calmly talk about my feelings or walk away. Okay, I'm anxious. Like, instead of avoiding it, run to it. I feel shame. Okay, I feel shame. I'm gonna raise my head now. I'm afraid, like, I'm going to move toward. I feel disgust, and I'm going to face it, right? So I, I've, I've learned to turn my secondary emotions, my negative emotions, into positives by doing the opposite action. And I think there's, like, a real truth to that idea that for people who think there's no hope for them to change – that you can, you just have to do the hard work of rewiring. Do you believe that there's 100%. a chance? Okay. 100%. If you do the work, you put in the work. I think, honestly, people do not want to face what they need to face. That frightens them. But what you're doing is more harm than good, not only to yourself, but other people around you. So it is so important to put in the work to become that person that you want to be. Stop being afraid. Stop being angry. It's going to take time. You're not going to wake up one day and be like, ha, look at me, I'm healed. No, it's a process. It's a long, lifelong process. But it is so worth it when you can hold your head up high and realize that you do have worth that you are somebody who belongs in this society and that everything that happens is not permanent, temporary. Some of this stuff is, give it a week, it's gone. You know, instead of just living in that moment, you have to give yourself the chance to breathe and to realize that there's so much ahead of you and so much on the other side. Just put in the work. You have to. Yeah. Now, I may not believe in the words will never hurt you, but I do believe in all wounds heal with time. That part, I believe, is, is true. Well, Tiffany, I just wanted to thank you for coming on and sharing and being so open. And it's, um, it's nice to have someone to be vulnerable with. Well, thank you for having me. If you want to join us for more discussions with us and our other listeners, we can be found on most social media platforms, including a listener-run Facebook group called the Silver Linings Fireside Chat. For deeper conversations with our guests and live conversations with other listeners, you can join us at our Patreon at www.patreon.com.
R-E-O-N.com forward slash The Silver Linings Handbook. This is Jason Blair, and this is The Silver Linings Handbook Podcast. We'll see you all again next week.